Yeah, doing a lot of training is not easy when you have a family with young children. I remember back when I was in Sydney, uh, when our girls were about two and four, something like that. And my wife and I were both training for triathlon at the time. This was back in the 90s. Our girls are, are, are big grown-ups now. We put the oldest child in a running stroller, and then I'd go out for my training run pushing the stroller. On my return, I would then take one child number one out and put child number two into the stroller, and then my wife would take off with the stroller, and I would go off with the, with the kids. I remember also doing my bike training on a trainer, sitting on the deck outside the house, training on the trainer with the baby monitor strapped to the handlebars and waiting for noises and then having to stop my training, get off the trainer, towel down, go up to see the baby, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of challenges. Uh, and today we're going to hear about somebody who took on some big challenges uh, and at the same time while having a young family and trying to balance up other aspects of his life. So hi and welcome to Running Book Reviews Podcast, where we review running books to help you decide if you'd like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help you keep you motivated about your own running uh, and maybe inspire you to try something new or different and advance your running. Uh, my name's Alan, with my co-host Liz, I'm going to talk with author Harold Cabrera about his book, Chase That Smile. Chase That Smile is Harold Cabrera's autobiography and account of how he managed to train for three big endurance events in the year he turned 40. The three events were the Paris Marathon, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, this one was with his wife Tanya, and an Ironman triathlon. The book has three sections that correspond to the three challenges. Each section is subdivided with dates in chronological order like a journal, but the journal entries talk about more than just what happened that day. Harold was a full, has a full-time job and two young children, so training for these big goals proves to be challenging because of the time required to complete the training. The Ironman training alone involves midweek long runs and six-hour bike rides, and then there are the hikes he does with his wife in order to be able to climb Kilimanjaro. More than just a personal account of every challenge faced, Harold provides insight into nutrition, the importance of training plans, and most importantly, how he developed the right mindset needed to take on such big endurance challenges. So a little bit about Harold. Harold Cabrera was born in the Philippines, grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, um, aka Winterpeg, <laughs> and lives in London, England. He studied engineering and currently works as a software developer and data scientist for Wise Traders, where he develops stock trading systems. When he's not training for some difficult, a long-distance event, he spends most of his time with his family. Harold is not a first-time author. He co-authored and published a C-Sharp for Java Programmers uh, book to help Java developers learn C-Sharp programming language. So welcome to the podcast, Harold. Hi, guys. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for having me here. I'm looking, really looking forward to speaking to you guys today. So we actually, since uh, like just before we started recording, we also learned that um, Harold has had a couple startups. So he's actually, he's quite accomplished and he's, um, yeah, he obviously always seems to have a goal uh, of some sort going, but how about we start with the book? So how did you decide to write this book? Right. Well, the idea for writing a book has, I've been thinking about it for several years before actually writing a book. 
in fact, during a lot of my training runs, there's always ideas and, and um, things that pop into your head. One of them is writing a book. And it's one of, the, one of those kind of goals you've had, or I have, um, that I thought it'd be really something I'd like to try or do, um, to try to accomplish at some point. And, but I never figured out a way or a topic. And until, you know, initially, actually years and years before when I was running, I thought maybe I would write a book, something about running, just maybe completing uh, a marathon. I thought maybe each, each uh, mile of the marathon would be a chapter or something. But I ran the first marathon and the, the book never materialized um, until when I signed up for the, the three challenges um, uh, back in like January 2017, when I start, I was into my training program. I was doing, I was on the tour bro one day, and that's when the ideas kind of popped into my head of like, I'm about to turn 40. I've signed up for these three big challenges. Am I going through some sort of midlife crisis? <laughs> <laughs> and then that was like the thread that kind of like started the whole idea. The Camille just really literally popped into my head. I was on the turbo trainer and it's like, wow, that's the book. I want to maybe jot down this whole year coming up, turning 40. And I wanted to answer one of the questions is, is this some sort of midlife crisis? I'm turning 40, it's a big milestone. <laughs> um, so I, I rang Tanya, we had lunch and I mentioned to her, look, maybe I should just jot down like, you know, an account while I'm training for these, um, for this year coming up, these three challenges, and just see what comes up. I never, apart from Tanya, I never told anyone that what I was doing. <laughs> so oh, wow. I was just kind of kept it to myself. But each day, I just took an account of what was coming through my head. And that's how it came about. Before we get on to particular challenges, you talk about midlife crisis, but um, I think somewhere in the book, there's you, you go through a checklist of how to tell if you're having a midlife crisis, if I remember rightly. Yes, and, yes, I uh, did. You seem to be ticking a lot of the boxes. I, because it's not just sports cars. Like, you know, like we always kind of hear this stereotypical midlife crisis, like, oh, yeah, the, I don't know, the, the, a guy will buy a sports car when he's having a midlife crisis or something like that. Um, but actually, your Google search uh, showed like many more like boxes to check. Yeah, no, it, it was pretty funny. Um, as I was thinking about midlife crisis, as I said in the book, I was invited to a 40th birthday party. So, so most of my friends around me are all turning 40. And so I just, you know, I Googled it and said, what's a midlife crisis? And <laughs> I found this checklist that was quite funny. And they have things like going to festivals, buying yourself an expensive bike, um, comparing yourself <laughs> to others, and all sorts of weird kind of teenager, you know, things that you'd find in these 17 magazines or something. And you kind of like take all of them. It seems like I was turning, I was having a midlife crisis since I was like since puberty or something. Yeah, <laughs> I've pretty much been having one since I'm 25. And like still now today, like I'm comparing myself to Sarah Hall. Every time someone tells me like uh, our coach, Bill, he'll often say like, oh, well, you know, you can't expect to run as fast as you did because, you know, you're not getting any younger. And I'm like, yes, but Sarah Hall is almost my age and look how fast she's running. She's like breaking records. So I'm always com comparing myself to Sarah Hall. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no bad person. Parent, huh? Well, but, it is yeah. when you're so much slower, but, you know, it's... It's, it's relative, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so with the midlife crisis, that's what... Uh, it, it was just a, a thread... I wanted to answer um, it, 
it's you know some aspect of but 4D as I know it's been I've been 4D several years now. <laughs> um, so it's just a number, I suppose, that's what I've learned at least. And um, at the moment, touch wood, I don't think I'm going through any crisis <laughs> yet. <laughs> Maybe you'll have another series of challenges when you hit 50. But oh, exactly. That'll be another book and another podcast. Yes. So, so why these particular challenges? So the very specific things? Yeah, as I said, um, it's funny because I think the, the first one that came up is Mount Kilimanjaro. And I think it was about... I think it was 2013. The idea came into my head um, from a, from the BBC, actually. I remember listening on the radio in uh, BBC Radio 1, and it's like a bunch of celebrities decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And um, so listening to their account of the challenge was, uh, was really interesting to me. And, and I thought it was, oh, wow, what a fascinating thing. And it was something completely different that I haven't done any hiking or um or mountaineering at that time i've done some wall climbing and stuff but nothing like a, a big trek like that so that's the first kind of seed of the idea of climbing mount kilimanjaro kind of entered my head and over the years and i think in fact um i begin the book i my friend sent me an email and he he, he sent this uh link of this amazing poem and in this video it's very inspiring and that's when I came up, I replied to my friend and I said, look, you know, this, I've been thinking about Mount, Mount Kilimanjaro and I thought it'd be a nice goal. Maybe we should try to all do as a friend, this is my friends in Canada, um, uh, you know, a little uh, trip we should schedule maybe before we turn 40. And uh, so that kind of, that was Mount Kilimanjaro that started. And, um, and then from there, obviously over the years, I've heard about, couple of other friends that have done the trip so that was the first thing uh Mount Kilimanjaro I thought okay I want to try and climb Mount Kilimanjaro before I turn 40 it's just another goal to kind of shoot for before turning 40 so that's Mount Kilimanjaro that's where the idea came from the Paris Marathon came about um again 2016 it was the off season uh so I finished my races that year I think I ran the Manchester Marathon 2016 it was I had a pretty decent time of, of some four hours, so that was a, I achieved my goal. So I thought, oh, um, I wanted to run the London, the London Marathon, but the London hard to get into. It's impossible to get into. And you live uh, in London, so I think exactly. you get an edge. <laughs> you do, but they they you have they used to have a the ballot entry. If you try every after six years, um, you automatically get a place, but they've, they've taken that off now. I don't think that's available anymore. Oh, yeah, because yeah. Alan, I think, has been entering every year, and I think it's I been think more I'm, than I'm six three years. years, I think. Three years oh, and three counting, years. three rejections. Oh, right. Oh, three rejections, yeah. So it's impossible to get into. And um, and a friend of mine just ran the, the Paris Marathon in 2016, and he, 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 was, he was raving about it. And so I just I did, just on the whim, I did a Google search, found out the dates for the Paris and, and it was a big race. It's like 14,000 people that would run the event. So on the way, I thought, well, I thought it would be like London impossible to get into. So I just signed up <laughs> and surprisingly, I got a place. So oh, fantastic. So not as hard as London. No, not at all. Um, so that was pretty exciting. So I thought, oh, wow, now I better start training. So that was the, the Paris um, marathon. And, um, and then the following month, I was thinking, I've been doing triathlons now for several years at that point. 
And um, I've, I've done several half Ironmans distances, but I've never done a full one. And it's still, even now when I think about it, it kind of like terrifies me. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, it's quite an intimidating distance. Sure so i bet it's I, even more intimidating because you've done the half so you know how that feels like exactly. all i know is like i know i've done a marathon and i know how that feels and you know i've tried to do a hundred kilometer bike ride i know how that feels and an iron man is like way more than a hundred kilometer bike ride and a marathon at the end yeah and, and it, a swim and a swim like and the swim even... the swim is mm -hmm. all three aspects of it is is because i know what it feels like with the marathon as you guys know towards yeah. the end of it a bike ride for that long it's like what and the swim terrifies me i didn't in fact i didn't think i can actually complete the swim and that's what been kind of bearing me from entering so that was in a sense that was my biggest hurdle and it seemed impossible for me to do an ironman distance but again i thought okay i'm turning 40 again you just let's push it and let's so i i found a race and I, i've been thinking about maybe it's time because i think at that point i might have done about three half Ironmans. I thought maybe, okay, let's go for it and try to go do a, a full Ironman. And that's when I signed up. And as soon as I, I pressed enter, I was like, whoa, I was really excited and nervous <laughs> and scared at the same time. Um, so yeah, and then that was just at the end of 2016. So basically what you went through is what all runners go through after their their end of season and their off season. They just like, you know, they finish their last race. They're like, I don't want to race anymore because like you get tired of racing because you've raced like all spring, all summer, all fall. You finish your race and you're like, phew, I don't have to like train. Um, I don't have to follow a training program. I mean, like we yeah. usually continue training, but like more, uh, it's a bit more leisurely. And then a couple weeks go by and you forget everything that you were feeling when you finished that last race and you start browsing the computer for um, more races. And basically uh, you end up registering for a whole bunch because um you're you know you have all this extra time so you fill up your next year race calendar that's exactly it. and you forget about the pain that you went through and the commitment <laughs> and the sacrifice of the season it became kind of blocked out until you've signed up and you realize uh oh what have I done um but yeah and then eventually I've researched and Kilimanjaro was on the list obviously so I've signed up for all three uh by by the end of 2016 and I'm like well okay so and I planned out you know when we'll do the, the based on when the I think the Paris marathon was in April and the um the Ironman was in July and then we wanted to do ideally we would have done Kilimanjaro in September because that's like when Tanya and myself's birthday are so but it wouldn't have fit because um our youngest daughter was about to start um like uh it's we call it primary school here so reception which I think kindergarten in Canada yeah. so and I thought okay it can't be a way for that it's just a bit mean if I we plan to have my parents come over to look after the girls while we're gone so we thought it would be too much for them. So we, we decided to go in June instead for Kilimanjaro. And we found a, a great company to, to sign up with um, that allow you to kind of cancel up to like three weeks before. So that kind of like made us decide, okay, let's go for it. We've signed up. And once you booked it, then you're like, okay, let's make it happen. So yeah, oh, wow. so I thought that's how the whole year kind of planned out. 
Was there any uh, particular attraction for Nottingham, or did it just fall in in the uh, in the right time period for you? Um, yeah, there was. Um, so the Outlaw is a big race. Uh, there's a magazine here called Two Twenty Triathlon. Um, it's a UK triathlon magazine, and you know I've, I've been reading about it obviously because you learn a lot about the sport. And the, the Nottingham, uh, the Outlaw, is one of the main races that kind of rate. And it's good for beginners. So when I was searching for races, I wanted to get a beginner-friendly Ironman, if there is such okay. a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so relatively... The, the water's like a super giant swimming pool because it's the rowing center, I think. Exactly. You know, so you know, I used to live in Nottingham. Um, me and my right. wife were married in Nottingham. I lived there for three years. My wife went to university there. And uh, we went to the rowing championships in 1986, I think. So it's probably the same piece of water. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, it's the, National, uh, National Aquatic Center. Yeah. Beautiful. It's a rowing lake, as you know. I think it's probably yeah. three kilometers. Kilometers long. Half. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I thought, okay, the swim, instead of a, it's got to be open water, obviously, but it's in the lake. So you won't get any... Uh, tides or currents or anything like that or sharks and, or, or sharks, sharks. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> no waves so relatively easy and i i looked at it and mo the review said it's fairly flat no wind as well so there's no choppy water so that in terms of relatively easy um it's a good beginner friendly in terms of open water swim um so that ticked the box and then the run was flat uh, so that definitely the bike, takes the box. That takes the box as well. And again, the, the similarly, the, the ride is fairly flat. There's just one little hill, but it's nothing major. So it's a beginner-friendly, and everyone rates the course and the event. The, the organizer um, organization is really good. So, yeah, um, and that you see a lot of triathletes in races as well, and you see uh, it's big in the UK. Um, you see the they get the Iron Man tattoo and they also have the outlaw tattooed on their calves. So, oh wow! Um, so it, yeah, so that's that's why I chose the outlaw as the, the event. And plus, it's the other thing is I want it to be fairly. I don't want to go to a different country. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Roth was the actually uh, another one in in my list. Um, uh, Challenge Roth was a, it's a race. I don't know if it's still around. It's in Germany. And again, they swim in the canal and it's a huge, huge event. But I thought traveling, it's just too much of the logistics. So keep it simple. Um, we can drive to Nottingham and um, yeah, and, and, and do the race there. So that's why we chose Nottingham. And is it called the Outlaw because that's a reference to Robin Hood? I guess so. I, 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 yeah. I, I did look it up. Um, but yeah, probably, yes. Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, probably. So um, it, it seems like when you were younger, I mean, I don't know if you want to kind of go over sort of your history, but like you came from the Philippines and you ended up in living in, in Winnipeg, aka Winterpeg, because yes. like winter is so cold over there. Yeah. Um, coming from a fellow Canadian, but that lives in Montreal. Um, so, you know, then you ended up in London, but it seems like, uh, like when you were younger, you kind of just, you know, you finished school and then you went on a trip that was supposed to last a month, but it like lasted 
eight months or a year or something. And then all of a sudden you're living in London. I mean, I don't know if you want to kind of go through that, but I mean, how, how did all that happen? And how was it to move from the Philippines where it must be really warm to move to a country that has winter? Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning. Like, so I was born in the Philippines and grew up there uh, till I was about just before my 13th birthday. And um, we lived in you know, a big city in, in the Philippines. Um, but yeah, so my parents, you know, they worked and stuff. But as you know, middle at the time, you know, the Philippines is a developing country. So my parents thought there's just a lot more opportunities in Canada. And my aunt lives in Winnipeg. Oh, that's how they chose Winnipeg. Okay. Exactly. So they sponsored us and we immigrated there. Um, so literally packed up everything in the Philippines, sold everything and moved to Canada. So for me, like as a, you know, I was really excited, actually. Um, we're fortunate. We learned English in, in the Philippines. So when we moved, in fact, as soon as I think got off the plane, I just started speaking English. <laughs> Whereas my brother and my sister still spoke, uh, spoke Tagalog, which is the Filipino language. Because I was a kid, I wanted to fit in. Um, so yeah, so that's how we ended up in, in Winnipeg. And in fact, I kind of, and that's all my formative years is in Winnipeg. Um, still my best friends, my family is still there. My, my parents, my brother, my sister, they're all still in Winnipeg. And it is cold. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think the coldest I've ever been, I think I was I was talking to someone about, I think it's like minus 62 degrees or something with the wind chill. Sounds about it, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> I great tell stories. But, but Winnipeg, you get used to it, right? Because you go from your house to your car and then into the building and we have cars that are plugged in. So they'll start in the winter and all that. Um, but we have beautiful summers as well. We got the lakes and everything. If you ignore the mosquitoes, but we won't talk about that. Winnipeg's great. No, too. no, don't talk about this. <laughs> um, Just the good things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So growing up Winnipeg, uh, that's my formative year. So I went to high school there and um, studied, uh, went through university and studied um, electrical engineering, oh, sorry, computer engineering at the University of Manitoba. And then afterwards, you know, was just before graduation, and again, it was just before 2000, we were thinking about, okay, we're about to graduate. I, again, I came up with this idea because we were talking about that the, the Sydney Olympics in 2000 was about to happen, right? And I thought, oh, it'd be cool to go to the Olympics. And uh, my Olympic dream was to, to drink with the athletes. <laughs> that was my Olympic dream, <laughs> is to, uh, to find an athlete and have a fight with them. So I managed to convince my friends, um, you know, after university, we'd go traveling um, before starting up, starting work. At the time, I, there was no thing as a gap year, but now it's a gap. It's a thing. It's a phrase, a gap year. Uh, it wasn't a phrase. But I don't think you have that really, like, it's not really common in Canada. But no, um, I know all. Alan was telling me it's common in the UK. Very common. Yeah. yeah. It's massive it's in Australia as well. It's a thing to do. And it makes sense. I mean, you, you, you go to university and then, but you learn so much more about life traveling. Mm -hmm. I do think that. it makes a lot of sense just because like, I remember going from high school to, well, in Quebec, we have CGEP before we have university, but you do have to in CGEP, like start to, uh, you have to take the right 
a program in CGEP to go into the program you want to be in in university. So you already kind of have to know, but like, you're not even 18 yet. I remember like just exactly. in kind of almost being shocked because they don't, I wasn't prepared. I'm like, and what? I have to choose what? <laughs> like I have to choose what to do for the rest of my life. Like I didn't even know who I was, you know? Exactly. No, so I recommend traveling greatly. I hope my daughters would go and I would encourage them to go by the time mm -hmm. they finish university. Do it after university, though. It's my recommendation. That way you don't get tempted and not go to university. But <laughs> that's just me. Anyway, um, so, so we ended up, we managed to pull it off. We ended up going to Australia. We did like Fiji and we back back to Fiji and then New Zealand and then Australia. Um, I had a working visa in Australia because uh, being Canadian, we're allowed to work there for, I think, a year. Some of my friends came back. But, you know, when we're out there, Australia was a pivotal moment for myself. You know, at university, being Canadian, you all you have this dream of you go to school. After that, you get the big job, the big TV, the big house, the big car, and that was the path. And you, you know, go through a midlife crisis. Exactly. You realize that doesn't make you happy. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but sitting in Australia, I remember I was on the beach in Fiji, and I had like you know, sitting on the beach, I had like a backpack and you know, uh, shorts and a stinky towel, and I'm just very happy. <laughs> And, you know, it kind of opened my eyes to other possibilities of where life could take you. And, and traveling was really appealing to me. And you almost, if you travel, you kind of just want to stay in that moment and just travel the whole world. And you, you hear stories from other travelers where they've been to, they've been to Bali, they've been to India, and you're like, I want to go to those places, right? So the yeah, so Australia was a, a big thing for us. Um, my best friends from university their best friends now we even became closer friends after that that experience and for all of us i think it was a pivotal thing so that kind of got me thinking about traveling um eventually you do have to come back home when you ran out or actually i left because i started a, a company in, in in canada then i went traveling but my business partners were still kind of working on it. Eventually said, you got to come back home because, you know, this whole company is based off my thesis. It's my whole idea. <laughs> you got to you know, do it. So I went back to Winnipeg and then um, uh, we did the, the entrepreneurial thing. Unfortunately, the business, that was just before the dot-com boom and the, the funding eventually ran out. And after that, that's when I thought, okay, you know, I've got this, this break. I'm you know, what's the next thing? So I did a bit of other traveling to Thailand. And uh, in Thailand, I met uh, Caroline, who's one of my best friends. She's English. So again, uh, it's supposed to be a couple of weeks in Thailand, turning into three months, because you all, when you're away, you always want to extend the traveling as, as long as possible. And Thailand at the time is still, it's very cheap. So you can live with like, in like $2, you have a hut and a meal, and that could last for like two or three days. So I was able to stay out there for a long time. But then eventually I have to come back and work again in Winnipeg because eventually you need to, need to work. You realize you do have to work on these trips. An opportunity, yeah. So after a few years in Winnipeg, this is around 2003, um, there was a cheap flight to, to the UK. And um, I saw it in the, in the paper. I thought, okay, wow, let's, you know, it's a cheap flight. Caroline's there. I just met her. I thought I could stay up in, in London in the UK. And again, being Canadian at the time, we're allowed to work in the UK. Uh, on a um, it's like a working holiday visa, so Canadians and uh, Australians and South Africans, people in the Commonwealth basically, can come here and work um, in the bars or incidental works and waitressing and stuff. So I said, to my "Mom, like, no, I'm gonna go 
do a, do some traveling. Again, it's supposed to be a one month holiday, <laughs> but one month turned into and right now nineteen years. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. So when did your parents like to discover you're not going to come back? It's, they still think he's coming back. Yeah, they still think <laughs> uh, yeah, at some point. Um, no, so that one month, it was a month actually, because I think I had like, uh, I have uh, my cousin's wedding coming up and I'm supposed to be part of the um, wedding party. And then, um, so being out here uh, in, the, in the UK, I had, I had a working holiday visa, but I wasn't quite sure whether because I had a job offer in Winnipeg that I turned down to go traveling just because I thought, I guess, I, I guess I knew Winnipeg kind of, it's not where I'm going to end up. I just kind of want to go out and see the world. And London's a great place to kind of be your base in terms of traveling because there's so many cheap flights from here. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I thought I'd stay and I'll try to work and, and see if I can get a job and make this trip as long as possible. So my flight, I had a return flight ticket that I ended up just not showing up for. Oh boy. <laughs> and, then, and then I had to explain to my mom, I was like, look, I, you know, uh, there was a fest, that was it. There was a festival in Spain. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is a really cool festival. I think I'm going to check out. So I'm going to miss the flight. I called my cousin and explained that I don't think I'm going to make your wedding. He understood. But yeah, so I think at that point, I knew I wanted to just travel, but probably my mom knew that I probably left home for good. Because <laughs> um, my sister told, uh, said afterwards, she, she emailed me, it's like, yeah, mom, my mom was going to my room just crying. So at that point, she probably thought I'm never coming back. Um, but, you know, I do come back every year visiting them and everything. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was it. I, I left home for good. Um, I didn't even know, but, you know, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah we, we all kind of hope that for our children, but then when they do it, it makes us sad. Oh, yeah. Gosh. We'll go, okay, go in, <laughs> f- go in, fly on your own, you know, yeah. fly free. And then when they do, you get all sad. Oh, where oh, are my yeah. children? Yeah, it means it means they did a good parenting job. It's it's just that like they wish that they had not done such a good one, I guess, at the mo- on the moment. You, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned your friend Caroline. Um, She's actually a key key character as a friend to you because um, she was responsible for introducing you to Tanya, who became your wife. Is that right? Yes, yes, um, she she is. Uh, so I met Caroline um, and her friend, uh, her sorry, her sister Marianne on the on the beach in Kosamui. Um, we have this beautiful, like a tiny beach, Mainan Beach, and we have this tiny little huts, and we we just stayed out there, just like it's idyllic paradise. All you're doing is lying in the hammocks, eating amazing Thai food, swimming beautiful sea. Um, so we we really got on, and um, and then so when I moved to to the UK to London, or went traveling to London, I should say, <laughs> um, you know, I stayed at her place, and and I met Tanya via her because Tanya and her um, went to university together. So so I met Tanya actually. Um, I think it was that year, that same year that I moved out here, um, it was my birthday. And I had just moved to this new shared house, but so nobody kind of knew. I, did, I just I just met my flatmates. I didn't tell them it was my birthday. So Caroline took me out for clubbing in in um, Fabric, actually. It's a, it's a big drum and bass club in, in London. It's a really famous one. So we went out uh, just before we went clubbing, because normally in, in uh, 
when you go out clubbing, you don't open, you don't start till 11 or 12 at night. So, so beforehand, you go out to the pub having a few pre-drinks. Um, and that's, uh, so Tanya came out and that's how I first met Tanya. And then we ended up going to the club and having a great time. It was like um, partying all night. Yeah. So amidst all this partying and um, traveling and everything, like how, how did you get into running and how did you, because Paris was not your first marathon. You had done a few marathons before that. So how did you get into that? Yeah. So I got into running after Australia. So coming back from Australia, I, uh, I was full of optimism. Again, I, I learned a lot about myself and life and in Australia, I just, I had this, sense of that anything's possible um you know so as long as you try you can you know you can do anything so I have this great sense of you know I can conquer and do anything and the, and and I kept trying to prove that to myself by taking on challenges and running was one of them so when it came back you know we did a lot of partying in Australia yes and there was one point um where we were climbing this, this glacier in New Zealand and I was, we were sep- put in separate groups. First, I was put in the, the fastest group. And then, so we're hiking this glacier and I just couldn't keep up with them. I was so unfit, uh, probably because of all the drinking I've been doing <laughs> throughout the, the trip. So I dropped back, but that was a pivotal moment to myself because I said, look, I don't ever want to feel that way again to be really unfit and not being able to do something uh physical so i thought you know when i get back home i would try to do something more active and you know do some more sports so when i came back after that trip um i signed up for uh i think it was like a uh a marathon relay yeah the winnipeg uh the Manitoba marathon relay a, a friend of mine that was working and he said look we're my company's putting together a team we were one guy short, you know, you want to do a leg of, of the marathon. It's like, yes, immediately. So I think I got the shortest leg of the, of the, of the relay. It was like seven or eight K. And um, that's how I kind of started. It was my first kind of running race. And then the fall after that race, I had such a great experience. I thought this is great. I really enjoyed it. And then the following year, I decided I would try for the half marathon. And so I, so I think it was maybe 2001 where I kind of signed up and ran my first half marathon. Maybe 2001, 2002. So that's where my running journey kind of started. Wow. So like you don't do anything like start small. I mean, you just, yeah, you just <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't do the like the the 5K and then the 10K and then no, no, you just went like you were like, yeah, I, th- I did this relay. I think I'm good to do half marathon just, just like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I didn't know anything about training or running at that point. Even my shoes was like really wrong too. So I was getting shin splints and everything. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed that, um, that first half marathon. And, you know, I, I took a lot of the, the mental stuff or like, you know, the positive stuff in the training from the trip and I managed to complete the race. And I think I even went under two hours. So oh, was wow. Pretty, okay. Pretty, even though I didn't walk for like a week afterwards, <laughs> it was a, it was a good race. And ever since I decided I would do a race, at least one race each year. And I have done, you know, run, signed up to a half marathon at least um, until I did my first full marathon. 
and that was in 2008. So okay. 2008, um, I was already in the UK. Tanya and I had Sophia, our daughter. And again, it's again, it perhaps I think I was about to turn 30 or just turned 30. I thought, okay, the, you know, let's push it you know, or let's do something uh, a bit more challenging. Even though I didn't realize having a baby is a big challenge in itself. <laughs> and um, I decided to, uh, you know, I would sign up for my first uh, uh, marathon. And, and Tanya actually also signed up, managed to convince her to do her first half marathon after, you know, and this would have been, I don't know, less than a year after she's given birth. So, so wow. we did, we signed up to do the Amsterdam marathon for myself and she did the half marathon in 2008. So that was my first marathon. And I think the same year I signed up and did my first iron, iron, no, no sorry, iron, first triathlon. Um, and again, Perhaps it's the having Sophia or having, you know, starting a family was a, uh, the impetus to, to kind of try, perhaps do something else like, or do more things um, to challenge ourselves. I don't know why, but I thought we thought, oh, having a baby would be easy. Let's also sign up for races. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I thought, okay, we're not going to be going out drinking as much anymore. We're going to have a baby. Let's. And we moved to a new flat because uh, we our flat in Old Street um, was just too small. So we moved to a new flat and then there was a new gym that we had to, I had to go to and they had a swimming pool. And I thought I always wanted to learn how to swim properly. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be going out part. We're not going to go out partying night. You know, we have, we have a kid now. So, or so you <laughs> thought. Yeah. Or so you thought. So we'll be, I'll be up really early because you won't be sleeping. So I'll, I'll sign up, uh, for a, a triathlon in order to learn how to swim. That's <laughs> so that pretty extreme. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's when I first picked up um, uh, triathlons. And ever since after that year, I started doing triathlons as opposed to half, iron, uh, half marathons. And that's kind of the continue on from that journey. It's pretty obvious listening to you talk, talking, you talking about traveling and uh, the spirit of traveling and watching your face while you're talking about it, in fact, um, which is great been able to see each other because you can see you're just lighting up as you're talking about your experiences and when you're talking about your sporting efforts as well um you have this sort of i don't know this streak of adventure adventure spirit uh within you but also the way you can see it on your face you're obviously a very strong visualizer and this this comes across in um in the book as well where you talk about um uh, affirmations uh, yes. visualizations you you talk about visualizing you know the the positive runners high sort of moments when you're when you're out doing it and and you and you have this phrase that that occurs all the way through the book which is sort of your personal affirmation which is it's very simple life is good thank you thank you thank you tell us some more about that yeah life is good thank you thank you thank you it's <laughs> it's so simple it, there's not much to explain um, but within those words, it's quite powerful, especially for me. It, and I, I think the first time I read the phrase, life is good, I was reading this book about um, this man. He, he is something about when he was 92 years old or something, or 94, he decided to start high school um, because he never graduated. And it was wow. his story of his life. And in the book, he uses um, the phrase, life is good. And it was his mantra. 
And I remember reading it. We were in 158, my flat in, in the house share in, that I first lived in in London. And, and that kind of really got to me. So it's such a simple phrase, life is good. And, and it's almost self-affirming because life is good. Your life will be good. <laughs> you know, you yeah. must have heard like if you focus on something negative, negative things will come, focus on positive, positive things will come. So it was such a simple thing and really stuck to me when everything, you know, something, you know, when something good happens or bad happens, I just said, life is good. And that's where that phrase come from. And the, then I added, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's just because I felt naturally life is good. I just felt, felt gratitude um, and grateful for everything I have, whatever it is, you know, my, sometimes not much. Um, you, have very, you have little or, or, or a lot. You gotta be thankful, and I just felt like you know saying it, and I say it every day actually. With it, actually after a, a run, a good run, you know, you get that good run. You have to feel the the runner's high, and you look up in the sky. It's beautiful blue sky, and you just mm-hmm. life is good. That's how you feel after a good run, isn't it? Even sometimes yeah. after a bad run, after you actually, finish that run, I feel like that that phrase because like we we were reading the book and we've started our marathon training for a fall marathon, and like we had um we had a, um, a lactate threshold run yesterday to do. And so I don't know, like, I think I had just read a section of the book and, you know, because you repeat that several times, like life is good. And it just kind of reminds me of, um, because, you know, I used to work in a hospital. So I know like, there's a lot of people that would just like love to be able to, to, you know, be outside and do the things we're doing and they can't for different reasons. And so it kind of just like reminded me of that. And I actually, it made me think of that during the run. I was, I, I, you know, like I was sort of catching myself thinking, oh my gosh, I can't wait for this, this 2k that's left of this lactate threshold to be done. Cause it's, you know, that's when it was a 6k lactate threshold run. So we were at around like 4k. So, you know, it's the point where it gets painful and I, I just thought like, you know what, I, I mean, we choose to do this and this is, you know, you're not being forced to do this. It's because you want to and should be grateful that you're able to do it. So I kind of had that thought and I was like, okay, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna like be wishing for the finish line. I'm just gonna try and, you know, feel what it feels like right now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and yeah, and that phrase, I love it. And and it's again, it's like my mantra. Um, just it sets myself up during the day after, you know, today I went for a hill repeats in the bike, finished it, and just like, yeah, life is good as you say. <laughs> you know, we're we're thankful just being able to go outside. I mean, a lot of people, you know, aren't able to. So mm-hmm. that simple thing, you know, you gotta be thankful for. And there's so many things to be thankful if you choose to, yeah. And uh, in fact, I think I sent that in the book, um, you know, people always mention to me, oh, you're such a positive optimist person. And I, I tried to reflect on that. And where did that come from? And I think I traced it back <laughs> when I was a kid. I kind of live, I, I used to think I live in my little fantasy world. When, you know, when things doesn't go well or doesn't go right when you're a kid or whatever, I, I used to fantasize to live in this fictitious, well, it's not fictitious at the time, actually. At the time we, we were, I watched this American sitcom, Full House. And, you know, in this, the Full House episode. I used to watch Full House. Yeah. So within the 30 minute episode, everything, any dramas would be resorted. I used to love Joey. He lived in this tiny basement flat or, you know, of the house. 
And which is surprising because San Francisco, they have tiny houses. I don't know how their house does. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, but this so, was like took place in like the 80s. So, you know, the houses were bigger back then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so when things doesn't go well, I just thought, oh, I live in this full house thing. And, and I think that kind of stemmed from it when, you know, you learn how to use to control your thoughts and emotions using your thoughts. Um, and then so things when things doesn't go right or whatnot, I try to just think, okay, well, how can it be good? You know, how can you look at it from a different perspective? So it's in a positive light as opposed to good. Because most situations, depending on how you look at it, can be both negative or positive. And so, yeah, so that just kind of stem, you know, eventually when I learned life is good, thank you, thank you. I just start using it each day because I can apply it to someone who thinks. And, and right now it, it's like my compass, you know? So, you know, I, I say it and yeah, there's a lot to be thankful for. It kind of sets me up for the day or whatever it is that, that I'm doing. While I was reading the book, I was always I was always imagining that your three thank yous were for your wife and your two girls, like one thank you for each. But I don't know; it might be coincidental. But oh, that's a good way. I, to be honest with you, Alan, it, it, it's not anyone in particular. It's just thank you because yeah. one's not enough. <laughs> I don't know. It's just I yeah. feel like there's a lot of gratitude to give, so I say it three times, and it, it just yeah, it, it, it works, or it works for me at least. So um, the the other thing that uh, you did in marathon training, I mean, obviously you had a plan and everything and you were very positive about uh, about your training. And actually, you know, you did. It's not like your training went perfectly according to plan. You did miss some some uh, training runs and some bike rides and things like that because of family uh, just not being able to schedule them in and those kinds of things. And uh, before we get into that, I'm just kind of interested in how you ended up using heart rate zones, um, you know, instead of like, I don't know, for example, like me and Alan, we use uh, paces for our training. So, you know, we have like marathon pace, 5k pace, but you have heart rate zones, like zone one, two, three, four, five, I'm guessing is like usually the ones kind of, yeah. it's broken up into five. Uh, yeah. So how did you end up using heart rate zones? Uh, because <laughs> that's the first training plan I saw. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> In fact, you're you're mentioning about lactate lactate training threshold run. I was like, I've never done that. Yeah, <laughs> but you probably, probably have. I'm not sub three hour or you know, you guys are running <laughs> three hour marathons. <laughs> um, yeah, you probably have. It's just that it would have be been a zone phrased four like, or something yeah, like right. zone yeah. zone four for thirty minutes or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's. Uh... <laughs> yeah. No. So that I. Like I had like I used to have uh, my first heart monitor was a Polar watch, and I was using that when I was doing my my half uh, marathons and stuff. And then I my I think my wife got me a Garmin for for my birthday once, and um, in 2015. So that's I start using the watch. And when I was looking for the uh, a training plan, I just went on the Garmin site and found a training plan, and it uses heart heart rate zones. So, and it kind of made sense to me, um, that, you know, just following the zones and, you know, uh, sticking to certain zones that aerobic versus anaerobic runs for my longer runs and stuff and speed works are a bit thresholds and all that stuff. So, so that's how I started using heart rate zones. So you wanted an early question. I forgot what it was. <laughs> no, that was basically it. I think, uh, how did you use, yeah. What, what 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 prompted you to do that? Well, that's where you started, so you stuck with it. You guys do you paces, right? So you you, you pick a pace for your yeah. for yeah. your time, and then you have to 
Right, yeah, and then and then based on like your goal pace, I mean, then your training paces are sort of, um, you, you know, you always have these tables like we, uh, the plan we're using right now is um, the advanced marathon third edition. But there's, you know, if you look at like, an, like other training books, like Jack Daniels book, then he actually has uh, like charts in there with um if you run a race, a 5k, for example, uh, then it'll have all the equivalent sort of pieces for your other distances. And so you could use those for training. If, for example, you don't know what, what pace you can actually run a, uh, right. half marathon or 10 K or marathon. in. um, it's, so I guess it comes out to the same thing. It's just, the thing is like, you, you kind of have to use some discretion if you're on a hilly course or something like that, where I guess that's probably where the advantage is with the heart rate training, because like you're going with your heart rate. So, um, you just pay attention to heart rate and not like, yeah. Um, oh, this is too much effort because i'm going up a hill <laughs> you, um. you know two years ago um, my friend was i was following my friend he's he was doing the mathaton program i don't know if you've heard of it yeah and i heard of that about one, yeah. heart rates just keeping super low heart rates yeah i tried it for a while and i thought you just run really really slowly <laughs> um but the last few years i've actually started doing some ultra marathons and in fact i kind of find it a slightly less pressured than than the marathon because in a marathon you're kind of always shooting for a time mm -hmm. whereas in an ultra you just want to finish the, the distance and you know try to eat as much as you can so that's really right up my alley <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so yeah so it, and it's more relaxed feels like because you're not on the pace because depending on the terrain you can't keep up the same pace as you would on the road because most mm -hmm. of the ultras as you probably guys know is on trail right and you can't yeah. as on, on the trail as on the road so you don't pay attention as much on the time so my training slightly been different but having said that i've been putting in a lot of time on the bike lately because um uh, my my daughter's friend his um her dad is um is from colombia he's into cycling so I've been riding out a lot with him and I've improved immensely just riding with him because wow. I, I know I'm like a lone wolf in terms of training. I just turn by myself. Mm -hmm. I kind of just, yeah, I don't really compete. I compete against myself as opposed to other people. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the negative side of that is that you don't improve as much. I don't think, you know, if you're training, you guys are in the running club, so you probably know if you're running with someone, you kind of push each other. Mm -hmm. But I've been riding with, with him. My, my, my cycling has improved a lot, I found. So there are benefits training with someone and varying up your training. Even simple things like you made a date to run with, you know, a couple of club members at eight, eight o'clock in the morning at a certain place. You got to be there, you know, they're kind of waiting mm -hmm. for you. Um, exactly. So it keeps you disciplined. And yeah, it certainly I, it helps you in terms of, you know, a bit of competitive edge as well. But the, the disadvantage is if you've got all a lot of other things going on in your personal life, like small children who are ill or need to go to school or, you know, yes, vacations yeah. with families and stuff like that, you've got to slot your running in around or your, your biking or your exercises in around the other things. And now that the those slots don't fall at a convenient time for a club participation usually that's probably why you end up as a lone wolf no absolutely that's exactly right because it's as you know it's hard enough to to juggle work life and everything else in between um your training so having another commitment at a certain time that you can't move 
it is just another block, you know, hurdle to overcome. So train and I found during when I was doing the challenges, it was very important to be flexible. And I'm lucky, I'm fortunate at the time because um, I, I work from home. I've been working from home for years now. And this is before working from home becomes became a thing in the last two years yeah. because of the pandemic. But so I've been very fortunate uh, to have this flexibility working from home. And now hopefully actually since the pandemic, people can realize, should be able to realize now they have more flexibility in their time. So, you know, commuting in London, an hour is like average to get to, to work. You know, an hour there, an hour back, you got two hours, right? Which I don't have to, to do. So I can re- easily put in my, my training around that time. Um, and with, at the time when with the, with the girls were super young, it was quite important to just be able to move your, your training around in order to be able to, to actually do them. So having it into club or training partners, it just wasn't going to work at the time. It strikes me talking with you and, and the way that you juggle your schedule that there are a lot of people around who say, oh, yeah, you, you're kind of lucky. I'm, I'm retired, for example. So they say, oh, you're kind of lucky you have all that time. I would never have time for that. You seem to have sort of made the time. What would you say to people who say, well, I don't really have time to do the training? No, uh, yeah, you. it's like, yeah, you do make the time or there's, uh, you know, you just, you prioritize it. It becomes important. And my, you know, my, my family understands it's quite an important part. And also for me, because you're working from home, it's kind of like my only time to get outside. <laughs> if mm-hmm. I don't go out training, I'm at home all day and that's not healthy. So for example, today I was up at six in the morning to be able to get in, you know, on the bike by 6.30 and then back home before nine because I had to drive my, my, my daughter to, to the sports camp that she, she's working at. So, you know, you do fit it all in. If you just kind of like be flexible and move it around, you and try to go to bed early. So you, you do spend less time at night, you know, but you, you, I guess you just get better at organizing your time and prioritize, prioritizing what's important you know, works up there, obviously. And, you know, the girls looking after the girls, they're slightly bigger now, so it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you just kind of make, again, it's super important. And if, if you make the running as, as up there, I think you'll find the time to move things around it or move yeah. your running around and able to slot it in. It was, uh, it was impressive that you managed to do Ironman training while your kids were small. Like how old were Sophia and Elisa? Yeah, so Sophia in 2017, uh, she would have been like eight or nine, eight turning nine, and Elisa was uh, um, uh, three turning four. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. Because yeah, Iron I, Man involves like like two times a day training sometimes. Yes. So how did you squeeze those in? And uh, what did you do when you couldn't fit it in? Like, let's say you had to skip a workout did you try and make it up or did you try and um like did you just take pick up the schedule where you left off um in the training plan that was following there was um they would they would say which was the key session okay so the key sessions are the ones you don't want to miss so okay. that would be like perhaps your long run or your saturday uh, ride so those are the two key sessions and a saturday ride you know there'll be times you'll be running 140 riding 140Ks and wow. then doing a, a 10K run afterwards. So you have like you know, a seven hour session on a Saturday. And what worked for me was like, 
I try to do things very first thing in the morning. The first thing I do is do my training. Otherwise, for myself, if I don't do it first thing, it just won't get it won't get done. Um, it's very rare that like, you know if I, I manage if I miss it in the, the first thing, it just I have to to skip it. And sometimes you pick your battles too. So the key runs or the key training sessions you try not to miss, um, and that worked for me. And again, you know I just planned the, the week ahead what's happening that week, whatever's, you know, with, with not just my schedule, but Tanya's schedule and the girl's schedule with school and whatnot. Um, again, the, my advantage at the time is being able to work from home and, and flexible at times. So as long as, you know, I do the, I play the, like I, I do the drop off the girls to school. Uh, sometimes I would, you know, walk Sophia or Elisa to her nursery. Then I'll, I'll, I'll run back. I do my, my run and then, right as soon afterwards right on my desk and be typing away by nine o'clock or you know by 10 o'clock and stuff so yeah so just trying to fit in the key sessions if you miss some try not to miss the key sessions and you try to make it up and also sometimes you have to listen to your body right you probably know you you want to do a session but your body is just you haven't recovered enough or you're not feeling well um i think i mentioned in the book i have i learned this this trick sometimes you don't want to go training but it's like, or you feel really sluggish or crap. Uh, it's the 10, my 10 minute rule is, you know, I heard it's like, okay, however badly you're feeling, go out and try, go out for 10 minutes and then reassess. If you still feel like crap after 10 minutes, then call it, call it quits and, you know, train another day. How many times um, have you, how many times have you come back? When you apply the very order. rarely actually yeah, hardly ever hardly yeah yeah ever. because once you're out you're like well i'm yeah. out here now I might as well do the session and it's right? not so bad yeah. yeah i do that with the weather so it's a good it's a good trick to get yourself out there isn't it if it's really cold or really wet and it looks really horrible outside i go okay i'll just go out and um if it's really bad then after uh, 1k i'll come back and and but then when you're out there you're like oh no this is fun <laughs> Yeah, what well, one thing I found fascinating reading your book was the chapter on the the sort of summer thing or the the hike up Kilimanjaro. Um, yes. I guess because I've heard all about it um, from friends who've either done it or they're going to do it. We have both in our in our club, and and I did a little bit of running in the Himalayas, and we and we got to. Um, 5,300 meters, I think, wow. whatever that was. So I thought, I don't, I don't believe anybody's ever, ever climbed Everest because you can't possibly go higher than that and breathe. Um, yes. it's, it's, it feels impossible. And then I hear that, you know, the, the Kilimanjaro hike, and it just sounds, oh, a hike, oh, that sounds easy enough. <laughs> Actually goes much higher than that. It goes even higher than that. There's even less oxygen. And so I was fascinated to hear about your experience with that. And maybe you could just describe it a little bit, how it went, um, just for our, for our readers. You know, what, what is a Kilimanjaro hike? What does it entail and how does it get done? Kilimanjaro, uh, it's the highest mountain in Africa. I think it's at uh, 5,895 meters. And I think it's, it's actually growing too. I think it's growing by a couple of centimeters each year. Um, Oh no! So if you wanted to do it, like you should probably get going. Getting quick, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or wait a bit longer. You could say you hot, you climbed higher. <laughs> but yeah, so and it's just a it's a hike, just a hike. In term, in that means it's not technical, so you don't need any ropes. It's under, it's high, but not high enough that you need oxygen. Um, I don't think, 
although our guys did brought some oxygen with them just in case it was for emergency thing, uh, purposes. And there's several routes you can take up the mountain. Um, there's the, oh, I mentioned the book, the, the route that we took is the Mashami route, um, which they they dubbed as the whiskey route because it's the the harder of the other routes. The, there's an, an easier route, I couldn't pronounce it, Mawenga or something, and that's the Coca-Cola route, and okay. slightly easier. Um, and there's another route coming up from, from another side of the mountain where it required ropes and harnesses, and that's technical climbing. But this, in when, so in this sense, the route we took is a hike because it's not technical, so anyone can, you know, track up the mountain. And you can do it in several um, options. I think the shortest you can do it is probably six days. We decided to do it in seven days, just so you slightly have an extra day to acclimatize to the altitude. As you mentioned, Alan, you know, when you're climbing over 5,000, the altitude really gets you, you really, you can't breathe. Like there's no oxygen uh, or very thin. And that's the toughest part of the challenge. And, and in fact, I was reading about it when I was researching. It's a bit of a, it's the luck of the draw. You could be the fittest person, but if you, you can't uh, adjust to the altitude, you, you, you know, you're just not going anywhere. Um, or it could be very unfit. And if you adjust well to altitude, you're up there, you know, you can walk up easy. So you guys, you guys had some headaches and stuff. So what, what kind of category does that fall into? Like, do, would you say that you and Tanya adjusted well to the altitude or? Um... Well, I adjusted relatively better than her because she started getting headaches, her and this other Dutch couple that was in our group from day one. So, and I think we were just at around over 2000 meters or something after day one. Um, and there, you know, you can tell it, it's, it's headaches, um, for Rinzid, uh, one of the, the guys from, from Amsterdam, he, he actually threw up the first day and we have like a seven day climb. So we're doing it for seven days and it was a very short schedule because we had to, we all flew in, um, from various places and, and then, um, started to climb the, the following day. And so for Tanya, she started getting headaches. So, uh, they just took ibuprofen. I, I didn't start getting headaches till about day three when we're over 3,000 meters. First, I thought they were faking it. <laughs> I was like, headaches, what? But then when you start experiencing it, you're like, oh, it's real. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not fake news. Um, and so ibuprofen was the go-to to, to kind of manage it. And until um, the final day where we had to do the summit bid and we were out with our research to help with al altitude. There's this medicine you can take called Diamox and it's to do with alternate, uh, to help you with altitude sickness. Basically there are side side effects, but I don't know what they are. I just, I trusted my wife. She did all the research and she's like, here, just take this. So that helped somewhat. So throughout the climb, you know, the, the first six days, it was challenging certainly each day because the steepness and the, the length and also you know there's a few times when you have to descend as well as as a uh, ascend because you want to like the maximum is you uh you walk up high and then you sleep low so that you acclimatize and then you sleep low and you do that over and over to acclimatize better to the altitude but again the up and down uh you know especially the down was a bit harder on the knees than going up going up is actually easier even though it's more of a struggle but in terms of your joints and stuff going down is highly uh, higher harder for the joints and stuff but summit night was a whole different level <laughs> and it was very very challenging first of all because you've been climbing for six days so you're quite exhausted in it anyway and getting some sleep and it's cold we we talk about winnipeg 
being cold. But mm-hmm. uh, and it, it got up to minus 20, I think, when we went for the summit. So for Winnipeggers, like, oh, minus 20, well, I'll be in a T-shirt. But it was, you know, been, been living in London for years. So 2020 was very cold. And then so you got the cold, you got the altitude is the hardest. And imagine walking up. Like, so we started the summit night. Um, we woke up, I think, just about midnight in order to summit for, uh, for the sunrise. And so you start climbing. And you just have no reference points. You're in the dark. Um, all you see is like your head torches. There was a full moon. And you look for, you know, you look up, you see the people above you with torches. To the right, you get the, the mountain, Moenga Mountain, I think. And then to the to the left is just the silhouette of the mountain against the sky. And that's your reference point for hours. So it doesn't seem like you're moving anywhere. You're just marching on the spot. And I think that section is 5K but it took us like seven hours oh, wow. <laughs> to climb it. And, it, it, you know, 5K to us runners, like, oh, that's nothing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you do that in 20 minutes, probably like, less than in your page, probably like 17 well, minutes. Well, or, you know, in the trails, <laughs> like, oh, it'll take me an hour, but no, I guess Yeah. Um, Actually, I was pretty impressed also by the amount of clothing that they suggested you bring because I get made fun of a lot, like, because I overdress in the winter. Like, I'll wear, like, two two sets of tights and things like that. And um, in my, my, my club mates just kind of look at me and they're like, you weirdo. <laughs> Um, but, but I think, I think in the book, you mentioned that they suggested that you have, that you wear like three pairs of pants and five tops or something. Yeah. <laughs> How much clothing did you have for that hike? Cause that definitely ag- adds a degree of difficulty, I think. Yeah, no, well, and plus, well, we're, first of all, we're walking, so we're not running. So you're, you're not concerned about uh, mobility, but yeah. So I had like, um, I had like a long johns on and then my, my climbing trousers, I had another layer of windbreaker, but I didn't put it on. So I had two for my legs and then have like my base layer and then a, a fleece. And then, yeah, I had like three or four, no, four at least for my upper body. And then a toque or a beanie for the English. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we did have several layers, but um, I, and I had like a foot warmer for my boots. So that was good. But it was cold. It's minus 18. In fact, I had like uh, my, my bladder, you know, like water, bla- uh, my water bladder, uh, the hose froze. We did, it wasn't, ins- ours wasn't insulated, Tanya and I. So before the climb, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do a makeshift uh, insulation. I took a wool sock, my wool sock and taped it around the, the hose. Unfortunately, it didn't work. It still oh. froze. So, so I, I couldn't even use that. Yeah, but it was cold and then it got windy as well. So the wind picked up halfway through, but the guide said, this is nothing. He said that uh, at times they would have to stop and hug a rock because they'd be afraid they'd get blown off the mountain. So yeah, so imagine for me, it was very challenging. Um, It's the altitude. It's like you're you're walking so slow, but it it feels like you're in zone four, you know, or or nearly threshold or, you know, because you just can't get enough oxygen in you and that saps your energy. And and then there's the exhaustion and it's at night. So you want to sleep. So all of that combined made it very, very difficult. And and I didn't think I was going to make it in fact. And so was the, um, was the sunrise worth it? Because they had kind of woken you up in the middle of the night, I think. They woke you up, wasn't it, at midnight or something like that? Yes. So that you guys could do this final hike to the top so that you could be there before the sunrise. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's worth it because you made it to the top. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was an amazing experience getting to the top um, with my wife. 
and and the whole group actually we all managed to get up there um, there was uh, seven of us that summited and it was it was, I said it took about seven hours to get up there and you get to the summit and and it was incredible uh, it's hard to describe the just a bit of a glacier and then the sun come up and just it's just that you know it's like it feels like finishing a marathon it's like the elation that you get crossing that finish line and then you know get the photos and it's it's a great experience up there for myself um and to be able to do it with my wife it's it's definitely special and i guess it's worth it (laughs) when you got there but walking up it at the time I was like why are we doing this in the middle of the night you know <laughs> I just want to be sleeping this is hard enough why do we have to do it at midnight you know I was I said in the book it's hard enough when you try to pull an all-nighter out clubbing or something well, you know <laughs> let alone climbing a mountain but they must have some other reason to get up there uh I don't know I, they said it was uh for the sunrise but that seems to be the schedule okay and then afterwards you come crashing back down because after the elation you realize you have a three-hour track to get back down and at that time i was running on fumes i was on empty in fact and and then you still have to descend back down to camp and again that was it was a very long day so you started at uh at midnight just before midnight we, we set off we got to the top by around 6 7 o'clock or something like that and then by the time we got back down, I think it was about 11 or so, but we got down to our, our, the base camp. And then, but the day didn't end because we had a quick rest, have lunch, and then we had another 8K trek all the way to the next camp. So that day was like a 17-hour day, which is like oh, wow. an Ironman <laughs> cutoff yeah. time. So it was a very, very long day. And summit night was definitely, it's, it was tough. It was definitely tough. And how, because you were training also for, you know, you had uh, done the marathon already at this point and you were still training for your Ironman, which was after the climb. So you were doing some training and you did mention that you can't really train for the altitude except by going altitude, I guess, which you yeah. didn't do, I don't think. But what did your wife do? Like, how did she uh, manage to train for that other than because you guys had date hikes, but I think they were just like once a month or something, no? Yes. Yeah. Glad you mentioned day high. Yeah, that was what, that was her training. So no, she did. She was doing strength training, Tanya. So okay. she was following a strength training program, and that's what she was doing. And then on top of like the date hikes that we did, which is it's great. Like um, that's what we uh, kind of called it because we would go out on weekends. Uh, we would drop off the kids to to my in laws, and then around London, there's the Chiltern Hills, just an hour away from us. Um, or even, and then again, about an hour and a half south of us, there's the Surrey Hills as well, beautiful countryside of England. And coming from Winnipeg, where Winnipeg is the prairie, is completely flat. Mm-hmm. So a bit of elevation change to me is fantastic. So yeah, so so we did a, we did this date hikes mainly to just like test out the equipment that we had gotten for Kilimanjaro. But also it was just a nice way to be away from the kids <laughs> and just, you know, connect with nature and connect with each other. And just, you know, because you're just walking, you're active and you're not going very fast, but you can just talk and, you know, kind of probably when you guys go for a run, you mm-hmm. mind just wandering, you can just converse quite easily. So we really enjoy that. In fact, we still do it uh, regularly uh, when we can. So, yeah, so that's her preparation. And in fact, it was funny because everyone thought I'd be like, you know, you were training for the Ironman, like within the group, there's like, you have no problems with this. But 
again, summer night, it was, it's the altitude that gets you. So, uh, you know, I think most people, I mean, I read when I did some research, all sorts of people, you didn't have to be super active to do Kilimanjaro. You do your preparation, but I think it's a challenge that's manageable for most people, you know, and it can be, you know, it can be done. Although having said that, unfortunately, when there was a girl that started, there was eight of us that started, and unfortunately, she had a problem with her hips, so she had to turn back after oh. the first day, so... So it, yeah. it, you can't take it for granted. Like, you, know, you can't underestimate the challenge. As you, as you were going up, did you see any people coming down who were, you know, in distress? They have to come down quickly if they have altitude uh, problems. Yeah. Um, so on summit night, uh, we saw that a lot. So the start of the climb, you see a lot of, I saw, I mentioned in the book, that there was a lot of dazed and confused hikers being escorted down by, by their guides. And there were, you can see them visibly, just just don't know where they were. Um, so I saw a couple of those. And and then at some point during the night, I remember, because I tried not, I was reading about someone that I decided not to read uh, about it in, in the guidebook because I thought ignorance was bliss. Mm-hmm. But I remember uh, a section Tanya read out to me that, you know, ignore the sobbing around you. And I remember thinking that. And then right on cue, I looked up and there, I hear sobbing around, around me, you know, there was this woman just crying her eyes out. And I guess at that point, maybe she realized that, you know, the mountain beat her and she, yeah. she can't go any further, unfortunately. So there, it is real, you know, like there, I guess, I don't know what the success rate is for summiting, but I, I guess it's not hundred um, percent. So, mm-hmm. but um, the other thing is when we we're on, on our way down, we saw these weird contraptions. They had like this, this, it's, it's a bed. And they have like a, a single wheel attached in the middle with shock absorbers. And I'm like, I asked the guy, what is that? It's like, oh yeah, it's a stretcher. So what they do is- <laughs> Kind of a high speed downhill stretcher. <laughs> exactly. So you get two guys, one at each end, and they'll put the, the hiker on the bed on the stretcher with the, with the shock absorber and they can run down the mountain if needed okay. um, in case of an emergency. Wow. And, and you also raised, um, raised quite a bit of money for cancer research as part of your Kilimanjaro uh, challenge. Yes. Again, when <laughs> it's one of those ideas just popped into my head, I was, uh, while I was in, during my training, I think it was for the marathon. It was early part of the, of the year, um, starting the challenge. Um, I was kind of running, I was, you know, just running brain working away. And I was just fantasizing about, oh, you know, what would it be like doing the Ironman? I thought, oh, it'd be cool if my friends were kind of supporting me. Um, and again, this is my little fantasy world, my little happy fantasy world. And it's like, oh, it'd be cool if my friends would be supporting me. And it's like, oh, maybe they'll throw a party and to support me, they'll have like a, a little paddling pool and then maybe a stationary <laughs> bike and a treadmill and they'll, you know, they'll take turns doing the race while I'm doing the actual <laughs> race in this little setup. And I thought, oh, that'd be funny. And then maybe I can go viral. Um, and then I had the idea, well, you know, that'd be cool if that video would go viral, but you know, maybe it'd be better if you do it for a cause. And that's when I thought, oh yeah, we can do it for a cause. Like, you know, like, and then cancer research is a charity I've supported. And I mentioned before, unfortunately, like the year before, um, my uncle passed away on, um, with cancer so it's one of the charities i support and i would know other people my friends like my, my one of my best friends dad passed away with um with cancer and at the time when i was trained there was like several people i kind of knew that was going through cancer 
Um, so I thought, you know, I would support the, the, you know, raise money for charity. And that's how that came about. And, you know, sometimes I would do my training run, like the previous year, where I w- when I do a training run, just in my head, I would like, you know, uh, give shout outs to people, you know, to these people that are traveling with cancer, you know, this run is for my uncle or this run is for Dave and, and or this run is for Ty. And, you know, just to give him a little push. And again, I don't know, I, I it's just, again, I either to detain myself while I'm running, but, you know, you, maybe there is some connection there. Sometimes you give out some positive positivity. So, yeah, that's how that came about. Uh, so it was like a minor thing to, it's not a minor thing, but, you know, it, it was like a subtext of doing the challenges. But it wasn't the main thing. It's not the main thing I was saying. It was just, you know, I'll be quite honest. Uh, that was just, I thought it was a cool idea to do. Like, I think I mentioned in the book, like, I, I know there's a lot of races here in the UK where to enter a race, you have, to, you can go via charity places. Mm-hmm. And it's a good way to raise money for charity and stuff. And I've done that in the past, but I've had like a bad experience once about it. So I try not to enter a race via the charity route because I would just donate to the charity instead. Um, but in this case, it, I wasn't entering a race because of charity. So I, I just wanted to do it, in, you know, in spite of that. So, so yeah, so and I raised a, you know, a modest target of a thousand pounds. And, you know, throughout the year, I did manage to surpass that as well. So that was a nice little thing to be able to do as well. Yeah, I have to say that, like, um, I'm kind of the same with entering races through charity. Like, I know, um, oh, I mean, for example, the London Marathon, I think you could get a charity spot, but the yeah. amounts you have to raise are just, they're very big. Yeah, um, and so then, like, I feel like it's almost more pressure than running the race is to like, am I going to be able to raise all this money? So, exactly. yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah. For the Ironman that you did, just because I really want to ask this question, you met this kid uh, that told you that he was doing his first triathlon and it was the Ironman. And he also, in the same breath, told you that he registered for a 60K Ultra, but he was not able to complete it. Do, did you ever find out if he finished the Ironman? No, I, I actually didn't follow up on him. And I, I was trying to get his race number, but I, I didn't catch it. But yeah, it was funny because, you know, as I mentioned, I met him in the race briefing and he was, I guess, 18 or 19. He must have and, been because they don't allow you to register for those yeah. unless you're 18 at least. Yeah, he, he, he maybe 20 at a push. But he said he, he, he tried to do an ultra, 60K ultra previous race. Uh, previous year which he didn't succeed unfortunately and he's like right this is my first uh triathlon it's an Ironman <laughs> it's my revenge <laughs> quote unquote he says because he didn't complete it last year and I was just shaking my head I was like wow good on you uh, good luck <laughs> you know because for me my my Ironman journey is taken like at that time what nine years to build up to that distance I started from the sprint uh, because I couldn't swim and <laughs> I was like, you know, barely able to complete 800 meters of the swim. And then, you know, it's taken me nine years. So for her, for him to, to jump in and, you know, do his first race as the Ironman, hats off to him. I hope he did complete it, but who knows? I would have loved to hear his experience. I didn't see him for the whole weekend. So yeah. That's too <laughs> bad. I, I, yeah. want, I wanted to know if he managed to succeed. Cause I mean, yeah, I can't even... I can't imagine really that. Yeah, we we have a saying um, that that we use a little bit in our podcast where you take something on 
and you will uh, get rewarded in one of two ways. Usually you will get success or you will get learning. Yes. Um, it sounded to me like, it felt to me like that kid was going to get an awful lot of learning. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh, but the thing is, you never know, right? Because like, it could be that he was successful in which case. Yeah, it could be. Exactly. Uh, you get all the learning as well, probably. Probably. Yeah. One of the quotes I learned in Australia is this very good quote. It's like, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. Yeah. And and I, I play you know I use that a lot, especially after Australia. And that kind of motivated me to actually try things because I just thought, well, if you don't succeed, you get experience. So either way, it's a win-win. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so that was a quote I, I still use. I've taught it, tried to teach my, my friends and I use it, and I, I, I tell it to the girls. And you know, experience what you get when you don't get what you want. And as long as you try, you'll get something out of it. And hopefully he that kid did get something out of it. <laughs> maybe hopefully. another revenge for next year. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he'll have to sign up for, I don't know, a hundred miler next time. Yeah, hundred miles sixty K and the and the Iron Man. So you also mentioned that you, um, and I think it comes through like you're just a very social person. Uh, and you actually mentioned during well, so during your training, there were a lot of there were a lot of times when, you know, you tried not to drink as much when you went out with your friends and those kinds of things. And I feel like, because I get this a lot at work where people just think that because you're an endurance athlete that you like live like a monk all the time. And <laughs> you seem to just be like able to live like a monk when you need to. And then like you can, you know, in the off season, you enjoy what you enjoy. Um, so I don't know, how do you stay focused for the period of time that you need to? Because in this case, with your three challenges, it was a good portion of the year that you were, you were training and you know trying not to stay out too late and trying not to drink too much and uh, all the other things that you were trying not to do too much of like eat too much uh, bad food and all those things um yeah no i'm not as disciplined when it comes to first of all eating not disciplined at all but partying <laughs> definitely not as disciplined at all because I love a good time, Liz. <laughs> I really like uh, one of my friends' favorite saying when he sees that, Howie, good times, good times, always. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, but what helped is that I've got kids now as well. So <laughs> the, at that time when the kids were very young, you know, the social aspect kind of taking the back seat. Um, so that kind of helped. But having said that, I did go out a few times and one of the times is like my friends had a bachelor party in fact so and i just did like a 30k one of my longest run i think 30ks or something for the marathon and had to go to this bachelor party and after a shot of tequila and uh coffee martinis it was like training was out the window <laughs> <laughs> that was the last thing <laughs> I, I had in mind so you know i like to enjoy myself it's about balance isn't it you know so you do try to balance it out and i do believe in in that you know balancing everything family your friends having fun because I, you know you do have to enjoy yourself i think i personally think you know i find enjoyment in lots of different things and a lot of them and socializing is one of them so you know we went out to miami during that year as well and i was out with my colleagues so i was a did a lot of drinking there um and, and you know i i run again to challenge myself and to finish the race so there's a time aspect but that's secondary to me because to me finishing is my challenge 
So I'm not going for a specific time or whatnot. So I, I do get disappointed when I didn't, you know, I don't reach my target time per se, but that's manageable, you know, like, because I know, especially for the long distance endurance stuff, it's just finishing is the challenge and stuff, you know, like the last 10K of a marathon, you're like, after you hit the wall, you're like, oh my God, I, you know, this is impossible. How can I get finished, you know? So yeah, so it's a balancing act, I'd say. And you try to do that, not just with social aspect, I mean, your family and your work and stuff. And, um, and you try to figure out a way to make sure it all works. Yeah, in your book, you, you mentioned that you, you got a letter from your, your I guess it's your elder daughter, Sophia, for your birthday, saying how much she looked up to you because you achieved your goals. How did that make you feel as an athlete and a father? Oh, I, I, uh, yeah, um, emotionally, my heart just kind of burst when I read that. And it was in front of friends when I read the card and I, I couldn't help the tears and I was just crying. That was the, um, she got me the card when, on my 40th birthday. So when Ashley turned 40, after finishing all the challenges, what she wrote was very touching. And for, you know, at the time she was nine, you know, it, for a nine-year-old to be saying it, it, it was uh, incredible. And as a father as well, um, it was incredible. And and she said, you know, you completed all your challenges, really proud of you. I'm lucky to have a dad just like you and you taught me to never give up. Um, and if you, you can do anything, if you believe, and those are powerful things for a little mm-hmm. child. And, you know, as a, as a parent, something I could only help, you know, I would love to be able to teach them. And for her to be able to, to say that and write it back to me was, a, was very special. So, yeah, um, and I'm not going to believe what I said in the, the end of the book. But, <laughs> but yeah, so it, it was very touching, Alan. And, you know, as a father yourself, I'm sure you can only imagine and, you know, what your kids have written throughout the year so it's right up yeah i mean one of the things i got to do a few couple of years ago was to actually run a marathon with my youngest daughter she ran her first ever marathon and i ran with her and that was quite special oh excellent oh that's amazing and maybe that's on your agenda at some stage you never Mm -hmm. know you know what i was telling the girls maybe we'll do a a triathlon relay you know uh you know i I can either do the swim or the run or you know it's like you you pick um, my, my youngest, Elisa, she's in the swimming club at the moment, although she doesn't like it, she's actually quite good at it. <laughs> so she's yeah. been put up the levels and she's, she's in the, the group with like 13, 14 year olds. And she's like, I, I guess the trick is to get them wow. to do it because they want to, and not because you want them to, if you know what I mean. Uh, absolutely. No, you're right. And the, the reason we actually put her in there because it's a cheap, cheaper than swimming lessons <laughs> <laughs> so so i said once you learn how to swim you know and she can swim properly now she can actually do the butterfly which i don't know how to do yet so she's going to teach me um but yeah she's at the point where i think another year when she's like oh if she doesn't want to do it anymore she probably won't continue if it's up to her so, so i guess you better uh, do that team triathlon like in the next year yeah. <laughs> she's she's all trained up in swimming so yeah you can do the swim and uh you know Sophia or you can do the bike and then there's the run so the other the person left over can do the run. yeah maybe all three of them can do it and I'll just be the coach (laughs) (laughs) so Tanya can do the run (laughs) or the cycle and uh, I'll just cheer them on (laughs) because they certainly was a big part of my race so uh, you know doing the Ironman without them uh to support me and cheer me on. I didn't think, I, you know, there was plenty of times I wanted to quit and probably would have if it wasn't for them. So, yeah. Um, in fact, Tanya just did, uh, two weeks ago, she did a 100K hike uh, wow. over two days. So 
I was uh, able to give back in the sense I was a support crew. Uh, she did it with two other friends. So I was, you know, driving, oh, cool. stop, supporting them. So that was nice. I actually enjoyed it, uh, being a support crew. Because, you know, for once I wasn't racing. <laughs> I just get to cheer. So I guess, um, you know, so that we don't uh, impose on any more of your time, um, maybe we can just um, ask a couple of the wrap-up questions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, like, one of them is just, uh, what do you hope that people get out of the book? Like, what message do you, do you kind of want to leave them with? Oh, message. Well, no, it's a tough one. Uh, I didn't think about that one. Um, but I'll tell you this, though. Um, when I was writing the book, it, I wrote it in real time in 2017, you know, as a diary entry. And then in 2018, I was editing it. And then um, in the, the last few years, trying to get it published. So what what I thought, th there's moments where I thought, oh, why am I doing this? People would want to read this and stuff. But I thought, to keep myself going when you had doubts whether this is actually going to be any good, I just said, um, you know, if, if I can inspire it or motivate at least one person to try a run or a 5K run by reading the book, I would consider the book a success. So hopefully someone would, pick, you know, read the book and pick up, you know, challenge themselves to try to do something, whatever big or small it, it might be, you know, uh, whether it's a 5K run or learn how to swim or something, go for a little hike. You know, I, I met this person, uh, this guy in Miami, he's like, oh no, my wife and I are very athletic and stuff. I said, look, I found date hikes. You know, I'd explained the whole concept of date hikes. You know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's so easy. You could find a, you know, get out there in nature and go for a little walk. And for some people, that's a challenge. So you start with that. So yeah, so hopefully they'll get something out of it That in that sense. And if people want to get copies of your, of your book, is there anywhere in particular that um, you'd like to direct them? Not in particular. Uh, so in Canada, I think Amazon is probably the easiest way, although you can order it like other online retailers. You can get it. If you can come to my website, there's chase.smile.com. That's available for, via my publisher or Amazon as well. I hate, you know, I, I like Amazon, but some people might do. But, you know, if you just Google it, it's, it'll come up with all different uh, online retailers. Um, yeah, and ebooks, it's available in ebooks as well. So on Apple, um, iBooks, and, and Google as well, and Kindles and other devices. My friend downloaded using Kobo, so in Canada. So, and if people wanted to follow you, where's the best place to follow you? Right. Yeah. So there's my website. So I'm learning all about social media. That's my next challenge. <laughs> um, Your Instagram is quite good, though. Like you always have like these nice pictures with um, some kind of quote on them. That's, you know, either inspirational or uh, has to do with has to do with triathlon. To be honest with you, Liz, I'm learning and I read something that you need to do content each day and I figured out easy way and I actually quite enjoy doing them is you know quotes and motivational quotes it's either running swimming cycling or triathlons or hiking so it's easy kind of like you know at the end of the day after work I just find a quote and put something together um, so yeah so that's up on the website chasethatsmile.com I'm on Instagram I think it's like at chase full stop that full stop smile because the other one was taken. <laughs> Actually, it was taken by me, but they canceled the account and I can't get it back for some reason. Um, but you'll find it on on our on my website. Um, and it's got a, I got a, on Facebook, I've got a Facebook page as well called Chase That Smile Without Any Full Stops in the Middle, or periods, you would say, in Canada. Yeah, just in general comments about the book. It's basically a book about, you know, every, every person who's 
than anything athletic. You know, you don't have to look at the book and go, I could never do that. You can read the book and go, okay, does he ha does does Harold have some skills that I don't have? Maybe not. And to that extent, you know, we've all got our hopes and dreams for our sporting challenges or our athletic challenges. And we've all got our obstacles and difficulties with other aspects in our life. Wherever you are in that process, a significant degree of commitment is, is needed and you have to stay the course while not messing up the rest of your life, basically. And I think what we see in the book, Chase That Smile, is basically you doing that and doing a, a superb job of it. Um, you know, the, the neat thing, I think, is that you're not an elite athlete, that you're a determined finisher. You, you, you don't give up and you work, work your way how to do it and you're committed and I think we can all sort of identify with that and admire it it's what we want to see for ourselves at whatever level we're at the the, the approach of writing is sort of a diary approach and it, it's, it felt a little strange to begin with when I started with it but after a while you start to pull us then into your background your life background your challenges your your, your connections etc um, and, and as that sort of story builds up, the diary effect uh, works perfectly. So what I would say to people is, you know, if they, if they get a copy and read it and they read it and they go, oh, it's kind of like written like a diary. I'm not sure I like this. Stay with it for about, you know, five or ten pages and you'll find because then you start to you write, you know, Thursday I did this training. But then you go, but I was reflecting on three years ago with my buddies. And then you get the background story um, that comes out. So. I would encourage people to stay with it. Um, something we didn't mention, the photo of Harold Tanya and his two little girls crossing the Ironman finish line right at the end of the story after you've described it all is absolutely priceless. I'm so glad that you put that photograph in at the end. It was like a little gift, like like the cherry on the cake, so to speak, at the at the end of the book. So superb. I mean, what I would just to finish off what I would say about about Harold is he has a spirit of can do and a great approach to visualize how to get there and to visualize what he's done in the past and then to have the appreciation for that. You know, extremely extremely positive and can do. I think in the 50s we're probably in your 50s Harold we're probably going to get a book that is uh you know your challenge for Everest and uh, the North Pole and maybe uh, a moonshot or something like that. You know, there will be the three challenges. I could see that happening. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Don't plant seeds in my head. <laughs> Over to you, Liz. Yeah, I think you're going to get a nasty email from Tanya after this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I also like the journal format. It made me feel like I'm getting a glimpse uh, of a diary. And I enjoyed the sometimes random thoughts along the way. Like when Harold Googled the symptoms of a midlife crisis. Um, I'll let you guys read that. The list was funny uh, because I think every long distance athlete probably has several of these symptoms, which include um, wanting to participate in long endurance activities. Um, I know that I've... Uh, probably been in my midlife crisis since I was about 25 and I don't have a sports car yet so yeah so that that was a lot of fun 
and uh, it's mostly light and entertaining reading, but it does have some lessons in it. So the things that I took away were you never know what will happen if you say yes to a new experience. Uh, that seems to be uh, a Harold's, a Harold just seems to be good at saying yes to all kinds of experiences and doesn't even seem to ask himself the question <laughs> of uh, like what might happen. No, no, he just says yes and then he just figures it out. But with some planning, you can fit in some time for yourself among a busy work and family schedule. Uh, that was also uh, sort of a lesson that I, I think Harold um, gave us during the book. And uh, most important one was that your attitude matters. So the thing is that the story is not just all about success is just it seems like his successes whether that's being able to fit in that midweek long run which like when you are working for eight hours during a day and then also you have to pick up your daughter after school and whatever and then you have to go do a long run which can be anywhere from two to three hours long um that's not easy to really to fit in but it seems like he never really dwelled on those things you know, he really was very positive about all his training that he did and just like all the life experiences and they weren't necessarily all just just good things. Often uh, Harold says life is good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like we've already mentioned. And it's not because he's accomplished his A goal. He'll say these things during training when he wakes up beside his wife in the morning, uh, during moments with his kids. And for me, it was a reminder to be grateful for every day because the journey is more important than the destination. So thank you, Harold, for, for those. In those fact, thank you, lessons. thank you, thank you, Harold. Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> we should say it three times, definitely. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's very kind of you guys. That's very, very nice to get feedback from what you're taking out of the book. Um, you put it very well. It's well put. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it works saying it three times, doesn't it? <laughs> And all the best in your next adventures. And talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you to Harold for spending time with us today and for providing copies of his book. If you'd like to leave us feedback on how you can improve, the, how we can improve the podcast, or want to suggest a book that you'd like us to review in future episodes, please leave us your comments on social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter we are Reviews underscore Running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes as they are released. Or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. If you've been listening for a while and are wondering how you can help us out, here are a couple of ways. If you're enjoying the pod sp podcast, spread the word. Tell your friends about us or share a link to your favorite episode with a running partner. Or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, if this is how you listen to the podcast. Or you can rate us on Spotify out of five stars. You have various choices, but five stars is the only one you need. Also, you may be aware we are now on Buy Me A Coffee, where you can go to the Buy Me A Coffee website, look for running book reviews under creators, and buy us a coffee or two. That's all for us for now. Thanks. Bye. Bye.